Thank you all very much for coming along today. Um, I'm Stan Grant, International Editor at Sky News Australia. Um, today, we're looking at the issue of the dangers of telling stories in our world, the challenges and risks that journalists take, in, and, and others, in being able to, to, to make connections between us in different parts of the world. I'd like to welcome our audience as well, watching in Melbourne and Brisbane, and also those watching online. Uh, you often hear this phrase that no story is worth dying for. Um, it's often repeated in newsrooms, and from my experience, it's far from true. There are people who are prepared to put their lives on the line every single day to tell stories, and journalists who are prepared to put themselves at risk to go and to speak to those people, those courageous and brave people who are challenging authority uh, and who are standing up for justice and demanding that their voice and the voices of others be heard. And we're going to discuss some of those stories and the parts of the world that the people on the panel here today have reported from. I'd like to welcome uh, the people that are joining us today. Lydia Cacho is a journalist from Mexico who's worked tirelessly to expose international sex trafficking, has written a book, Slavery Inc. Nice to have you with us, Lydia. Thank you. Thank you. Bradley Garrett is a social and cultural geographer from Oxford University, author of Explore Everything, Place Hacking the City. And we'll find out what place hacking is in just a moment. <laughs> Thanks, Bradley. <laughs> Masha Gessen uh, is a Russian-American journalist uh, who took on, well, one of the biggest foes you possibly could, I'd imagine, <laughs> right, right now, Vladimir Putin, in her biography of Vladimir Putin, Man Without... Uh, a face, uh, has also written a book about Pussy Riot, we'll be discussing that a little bit later, uh, Words Will Break Cement, The Passion of Pussy Riot. Thank you, Masha. Thank you. I want to start first of all with you, Lydia, uh, seeing as you're, you're right next to me, but what is it that drives you to take the risks that you do to tell the stories that you believe need to be heard? Well, I am a reporter, and when you're a reporter, one of the things you do is you um, first you search for a story, you, you find your hypothesis, and then you go around trying to get people to prove it or disprove it. And that's, that's what I did. And ever since I began when I was 22 years old, um, I interview women, and they all, all they wanted to talk about was... Uh, gender inequality and violence against them, violence against children. So I sort of became a specialist on that. And what drives me is that millions of people around the world have no um, possibility of their voices being heard. So when you're a journalist, when you're a reporter and people are listening to you and are reading the stories, it's, uh, it entitles to, I mean, it's a great responsibility and I'm really proud of that responsibility and I respect that. Masha, you were working in Russia and you decided that the story of Vladimir Putin needs to be heard and told. And we know that that is an extraordinarily risky thing to do. Uh, people are jailed, people die by standing up to the Russian regime. What was it that inspired you? There are many, many journalists working in Russia. There are many people uh, who probably have the idea to talk about these things and to write about Vladimir Putin. But you took it that step further and you did write about him. Why? Well, first of all, I'm not the only one. 
there have been other journalists who've written about Putin. Uh, I also think, I mean, there, there's something uh, that I, I just want to acknowledge. There's something strange about this panel because we are all safe and sound and we're sitting here, yes. right? And we're talking about danger that actually has been real for a lot of other people, a lot more real than it has been for me. And, uh, you know, who are, cannot be sitting here, uh, who are not safe and sound. Um, I think that even before I took on the, the, the Putin project, I was in a fairly privileged position. I was writing for a lot of the Western media. I'd been writing for you know, major Western publications since the 1990s. Um, I originally wrote a long profile, profile of Putin for Vanity Fair, which was sort of the beginning of the, of the book, and that, that came out in 2008, during the year when I had a fellowship at Harvard. So I sat the aftermath of that piece coming out out at Harvard, which is again, an option that a lot of journalists don't have. Um, and then after I had a contract to write the book, I basically kept it secret for, uh, up until the moment that my publisher had the manuscript. Then uh, we were very specific about how we were going to handle the manuscript so other publishers could only see a little piece of it and only out of my agent's hands. Uh, it was all very cloak and dagger and I think it was good for the sales of the book. Uh, and, um, <laughs> and then, um, uh, and then that, was, that was just a couple of months before the book came out. And then I was just very, very lucky. I mean, that was, that was being careful and smart and privileged. And then I was just extremely lucky because by the time the book came out, uh, there were mass protests in Russia. And all of a sudden, I didn't stick out like, um, like this one journalist who was taking a risk. There were hundreds of thousands of people who were taking similar risks. And, and certainly you know, scores of people who were really putting themselves at the forefront of the protests and have risked a lot, and some of them have ended up in jail since then. Mm. Um, and again, you know, my book came out in 20 languages, um, and uh, by the time that anybody knew about the book, it was too late to do anything about its publication. So um, I think that I haven't faced risks as great as many of the journalists who, um, you know, who, who do not publish in, in English or in other languages who do not have the eyes of the world on them and who get beaten up or killed. And I just want to mention two people who were beaten up in the last week. You know, there's Lev Schlossberg in Pskov, who is a brilliant man and who published interviews with the families of Russian soldiers who died in Ukraine, basically proving definitively for the first time that the, the regular Russian army is in Ukraine. Two days after those came out, Lev Schlossberg was beaten and he's in the intensive care unit in Pskov right now. I think uh, Masha raises an interesting point and I think we also need to pause to reflect on a case that has captured the world's attention over the past week and that is the beheading of American journalist James Foley by Islamic State militants that of course was graphically captured on video and uh, it's not just outraged the world but has also um, I think led now to a situation where we may see even greater military action on the ground, that's a, another story. Um, Peter Grester as well we need to reflect on one of the uh, three Al Jazeera journalists who are still held in a prison in Egypt um, for trying to cover the situation, uh, the political situation on the ground there. Uh, so, yeah, you're right, Marsha. There are people who are taking these risks directly every day. Lydia, um, I'll get to you in a moment and look at your personal story because there are some extraordinary stories, if you don't mind sharing them with us. Bradley, you're not a journalist, you're an academic, but you face many of the same challenges in trying to challenge authority, provoke a response, um, to, to expose 
issues uh, that you believe need to be exposed. Place hacking. What is it? And tell us a little bit about your work. Um, well, my, my project, uh, which turned into the book Explore Everything, Place Hacking the City, is, is about exposing hidden spaces in cities, spaces that we normally don't have access to, and that can include, include uh, abandoned buildings, but also infrastructural systems, construction sites. Um, and I guess I have to say, I, was, I also felt a bit strange about the composition of the panel because, you know, in this context, it, you know, my work seems somewhat trivial and maybe even insignificant, but the um, consequences that I faced for publicizing this information uh, about secret spaces in the city was nothing I ever could have anticipated. Being arrested, having your passport confiscated. Yeah. Yeah, the, the UK government uh, arrested me after the publication of my PhD. Um, I was arrested for, yeah, I was... <laughs> well, you know, there, there's a result from a PhD for once. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they, they, they stopped my plane at Heathrow and they handcuffed me on the plane and, and dragged me off and took me through passport control. And the, the, uh, the Home Office took my passport and they had it for two years. Um, I actually didn't get my passport back until I, I, I went to come here, and it, wasn't, it was only because of the diligence of the festival organizers and my lawyers and the U.S. Embassy that I was actually able to leave the country, which sounds insane. It, it, but it's, it's interesting you mentioned there the, the U.S. Embassy role too, because you were really left to your own devices here, weren't you? You felt extraordinarily exposed. Suddenly, it was you versus the state. Yeah, and the thing was, you know, in, in, in many cases where... Um, censorship is happening or people are being silenced, uh, we know where to point the finger. But the problem in the United Kingdom is that it was this kind of headless bureaucratic process and I didn't know who to contact and there, there seemed to be no oversight and there was no one to get in touch with. You know, initially when I went to the US Embassy, just after my arrest, they told me, you know, this is an issue between you and the UK government. We're not getting involved. So, and you're an American citizen. And I'm an American citizen, yeah. Um, and so, you know, so I got tied up in this, in this you know, Horrible, and you process. didn't even have any legal recourse at that at that time either, did you? I didn't know. I, I had to pay out of pocket until I was actually charged with something. Um, so they were trying to. They were. They. They. When they arrested me, uh, the point of the arrest, I think, was to get access to my research materials. And this um, is for exploring hidden parts of the city or parts yeah. of the city that were closed off. Tunnels. Uh, you've scaled some of the, the largest buildings um, in the city. Yeah. It, I mean, it's important to point out that, that the kinds of urban exploration that. I got involved with were happening before I got there. My, my research was about getting in touch with this community and doing ethnographic work, which you know, from the Greek is literally culture writing. So there's a very fine line between long form journalism and mm. ethnographic work. Um, I spent five years living with this community to, to you know, understand their worldview and, and write about what the importance of the practice might be. Of course, I, you know, I didn't really anticipate the political importance of the practice because you know, the, the state response to revealing spaces in the city we weren't supposed to see was, was incredibly severe. It wasn't necessarily that you were in these spaces. It was the fact that they would be exposed, they would be revealed. Well, you know, the, the, the battle that we're all fighting now, whether we're journalists or researchers, is, is about access to and control over information. And what they were bothered by was not that we were exploring the spaces or even photographing them, it was that we were telling people that we explored them and that it was possible. And so it was undermining the entire security apparatus of London, which is supposed to be, you know, this is supposed to be the most secure city in the world. You know, it's a city where you've got half a million CCTV cameras, one for every six people. And, um, you know, this, we, we revealed the, you know, the, 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 the dark secret of CCTV. It's that most of them don't even work. No one's watching them. 
<laughs> Lydia, I, I want to take you back to, to 2005 and you were approached by several police officers in Cancun and bundled into a car or a van. Yeah. What happened? What happened next? Well, I had uh, written a book called The Mosafirin, an investigation in child pornography, and, and, and I published the, the names of all the politicians and all the traffic, sex traffickers and all the child pornography leaders, the, all the men that were involved in this, men and women, of course. And um, so um, I had lawyers, and they kept looking, um, exploring if I had any kind of uh, legal processes against me because I, I, I actually uh, published the names of uh, governors and senators that were involved in, in sex trafficking uh, of children and nothing happened and all of a sudden I was taken by these guys. I thought it was, uh, it was what we call now a legal kidnapping because there were policemen but they were ordered by the governor that was doing a favor for one of the leaders of the child pornography network and they took me from Cancun to over to Puebla, 2,000 kilometers away, and uh, they tortured me for 20 hours. What they wanted me to do Tor was... Tortured? They tortured me, yes. What the type of things that you Well, all kinds of to torture. They, they beat me, they put a gun in my mouth for an hour, they made me undress, they tied me to the car for a while there, and then they stopped in front of the ocean in the middle of the night, and they... Uh, pulled my hair and tried to put it in the water and told me I was going to die and they were going to throw me in the ocean and they did that for a, for a long, long time. And then um, all of a sudden people, the activists that were, that were really aware of what was going on, they, they called um, the governor and they said if Lydia Cacho doesn't come alive in Puebla, uh, you know, we know you have her. Um, you'll be in trouble. So that's why the policeman stopped and they said, okay, you're going to jail. And then I went through trial and, and then it, I ended it up... It wasn't just that you were going to jail, but you were told very graphically what would happen to you in jail. Absolutely. That you would be yes. repeatedly raped. Before, yes, I have to say that before I was arrested, I was even illegally arrested, I had uh, received many, many death threats. First, I had this man coming to my office in front of the secretary and everyone else, bringing, offering me a million dollars to just not publish the book. Um, because I, they were afraid I was going to mention a guy that was a senator for the pre-party who's ruling now and wanted to be a president, and he might become a president. So anyway, hopefully not. And uh, after my book. And uh, so um, I didn't accept the money. They gave me all the, they issued all these death threats in different ways. We documented them, and then I kept, I kept telling. They kept, they kept in, um, threatening me, and I kept telling on them until... I, I was illegally arrested and, and they tried to put a legal process against me, a criminal process on defamation of the traffickers and the mobsters. And I, after one year um, of uh, being uh, <laughs> called a criminal by the judge, I won the case against them and then I'm taking them to international courts in a couple of months. <laughs> Lydia has often said that she doesn't scare easily. I, I, think, we, I think we know that. Um, it, it's difficult, Lydia, uh, and, and please tell me if this is getting, if it's too sensitive or it is, is too intrusive, um, to ask someone about the experiences they've, they've had. But uh, you've been sexually abused as well yeah. as part of your work. Yeah, as part of punishment, yes. In our culture, when you are writing about people who organize uh, sex trafficking children and, and women, and uh, they know um, 
sex as a, as a weapon. So they used it against me and they, they sent someone to, to, to rape me. Actually, we, got, we were able to get the um, tape conversations, if you're interested. Um, <laughs> they are on YouTube, of course. And um, because we got the conversations between the mobsters and the governor and they are just celebrating all this, uh, my arrest and my incarceration. And then this guy, Kamel Nassif, the guy, the leader of the band, he's telling, he's ordering the judge by phone that once I got to jail, I should be raped. And they organized a rape so we could prove how they organized the whole thing. And yes, uh, yes, of course, it was hard. I went through therapy, you know. I recommend therapy when you go through mm. this kind of things. Yeah, of but I know it's very risky, you know. Journalism in, in, in general, this kind of investigating reporting is, is dangerous, of course. And you're very aware of it. We were talking, Masha and I were talking about this in, in Melbourne. Um, but of course, uh, when you investigate this kind of, of people that are the cruelest uh, kind I've ever seen in my life, ones that abuse children make child pornography, which is an entire underworld. You have to become a hacker. I, I learned how to hack um, um, porn sites and stuff like that to understand who these guys were. So you become a real problem to these guys. Mm. And well, it's, it's dangerous there, I think. Masha, we're just hearing here the, the experiences that, that Lydia's been through personally, but in your time in Russia as well, in an environment uh, often of brutality and, and a heavy police state, um, a thuggish environment, I think as you've written in your book, headed by someone who's been happily, happily to portray himself as a thug, and that is Vladimir Putin. Tell us about the experiences you had in, in speaking to people, people who were prepared to stand up and challenge that system despite the risks that it may, uh, may, uh, may uh, put them in. Well, I, you know, I'm sort of comic relief after, after Lydia's story. But, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, a lot of the people, a lot of the sources that I use in my work are actually not people who are willing to stand up mm. and challenge the regime. They're mostly people who are willing to speak anonymously. And that actually, that poses a lot of problems for journalists. I mean, I'm, I'm writing a book right now that uh, partly is reported from Russia, partly is reported from Kyrgyzstan, partly is reported from, by interviewing people who are being harassed and, and hounded by the FBI in the United States. Uh, and, um, and I'm trying you know, to figure out ways to write the book and be transparent about my sources without uh, jeopardizing anybody who gave me information. That is really tricky. Yes. It, 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 it puts a journalist, it puts a writer in, in the position of, um, of you know, using a lot of paraphrasing, using a lot of ways of referring to people that I probably wouldn't choose. Um, but as for people who are willing to stand up and, and risk what they have and risk their lives to challenge the regime, I'm going to be speaking to two such people tonight here. Uh, are, the, that's the women of Pussy Riot. And actually writing a book about them was the funnest thing I've ever done. That's, uh, I was, um, for once, you know, I'd, after writing a, a book about Putin and before starting a uh, on a book, well, actually in the middle of, of writing a book about the Boston bombers, I got, a, I got to write a book about people that I genuinely admire. <laughs> just before I go to Bradley, I'll just share an experience of my own. I spent a decade working uh, in China and covering what is an extraordinarily repressive regime, I think along with Turkey, um, jailing the most number of journalists anywhere in the world. And there was a constant vigilance and scrutiny of us as reporters um, 
constantly being detained, having our passports confiscated, being threatened with expulsion from the country. But what inspired all of us, I think, and, and certainly I was always aware of, was, were the risks that people would take in standing up and the number of times we would arrange to interview someone only to find that they'd been contacted by the secret police and intimidated and threatened people who were arrested after we'd interviewed them to be, who were then beaten up, some sexually assaulted, others who then lost their jobs, others who disappeared for months on end, their families not even knowing who they are. Uh, it's inspiring, but it's also extraordinarily challenging. And Lydia, how difficult is it for you in this balancing act between wanting to expose the type of cruelty and exploitation that you see and also being aware of the potential risks and dangers uh, that face the people who, who are prepared to, to blow the whistle, the people who are prepared to talk to you. How do you balance that? Well, you, you have a tremendous responsibility. You know this. When you're a reporter, you, you just assume that responsibility every day. And uh, when you specialise, as I have, in, in interviewing children, for example, for a long time, then you understand so many things about uh, human beings and ethics and responsibility, and you take it all the way with you for, for the rest of your life. I, I remember one of the first victims I interviewed, and she was a, a victim of um, child pornography, and uh, she was nine year, years old, and uh, she didn't want to talk to anyone, and she said she wanted to talk to the crazy lady who was on TV, me. And because she liked me, somehow she liked me. And I, I, I went to talk to her. Um, and she just, uh, she was holding a teddy bear. And she was very, very thin, very tiny. She didn't want to grow up to be a, a woman. She wanted to stay a little girl. Uh, she was very afraid of her own sexuality and everything. And then she just looked at me for a while there. And then I was very cautious. And she just looked very seriously at me like an adult. And she said, Lydia, listen. I'm going to tell you the story, the entire story, but you have to promise one thing. And I said, sure, I'll try. And she said, no, you can't try. You have to promise. And I said, okay, I promise. And she said, you will get these guys so they won't touch another girl. And I guess since then on, I just, I just got the... the you know, the commitment to, to the girls. And I don't think I'm a hero of this. I have lost so many uh, journalist uh, friends in Mexico. 70 journalists have been assassinated in my country in the last six years. And I have lost five friends in the last two years. And I believe you were friends with uh, Anna Polakovskaya as well, um, the Russian I, journalist. Yes, I met Anna. Well, Masha knows her, uh, knew her. And uh, of course, and, and it's a risk. It's a great risk. And you don't do it for... for the ego, you do it because it makes it makes a lot of sense, and especially in the kind and line of work I do, um, I see a lot of response from society, and some of these guys are caught, uh, and um, and and I think there are some cultural changes uh, with my work, so I'm really proud of it, and I just plan to keep going. Bradley, uh, Masha raised the question of, of sources. Uh, identifying sources, protecting sources, the difficulty of dealing with anonymity. Uh, as an academic, you also have these challenges, don't you? But not necessarily the same protections or the same culture of, of protection of sources that journalists have. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the rest of the story about my arrest is that while, while I was being detained, my um, front door was being taken down with a, with a battering ram. 
<clears throat> they confiscated all of my research materials, and as I said, I think that's what they were after. But they also, there were pre-dawn raids on, on nine other houses in London at the same time. And uh, these were other explorers that were arrested. And the reason they were arrested is because they were connected through, through my research. Um, and when I began my research project, I had uh, promised them anonymity, as we do as ethnographers. Um, I had assured them that if that's something they wanted, they would have it. Indeed, there were a few people that dropped out of my research because they were afraid of the repercussions. And, uh, you know, in the end, we, we ended up having uh, uh, bail conditions that we couldn't speak to each other, and, uh, you know, we ended up in court together, and I can't ever relay the, the, the amount of guilt that I carry around for, you know, getting my project participants arrested. When I went to the university and asked for support, um, they cut off all communication with me, and they refused to support me legally, personally, emotionally. <laughs> I got absolutely nothing. Um, my current employer, the University of Oxford, was much more helpful and sympathetic, um, but it was it was a really frustrating situation. Obviously, you know, nowhere near as dire as, as what you both experienced. But um, the fact that I that I had no uh, that, the, that the protections I had offered them were, were vapid was, um, was quite serious, and it's something that we really need to address in academia. And I went to the National Union of Journalists in the UK, and I asked them for support, because I had no support from, from academic institutions, or this, the kind of support that I needed. And the NUJ were incredibly helpful, but it occurred to me that, you know, what, what we really need in academia is, is we need legal protections. We need to be able to organize to stop the police from getting access to research materials because if we, if we think about the chilling effect that this could have on future research when people stop doing work with us because they know that the police have access to anything that we do, um, you know, this could have very serious consequences for the future of academia. And it's especially disturbing in a time when academic institutions are becoming privatized mm. because they're becoming more and more concerned about their own image and about what the backlash is going to be on, on the, you know, the public image of the university. And they're less concerned about what, we, what research we can do. I, I now sit on the, the ethics committee at the University of Oxford. And I was given that role uh, as, as my kind of admin role when I came into the department because they said, look, Brad, no one else understands the importance of ethics more than you. And my stance has always been that all research, all, all research should happen. Hmm. Um, there, there's nothing that should be off the table. Because the you process can, of going... Can, you can mitigate risk, but, but you don't want to put the, the risk ahead of the, exactly, the project. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But in order to mitigate that risk, you need to know where the university stands, if they're going to stand behind you, if, if things get difficult, legally or politically. Um, and at this point in time, I mean, when ethics forms come across my desk, I just, you know, I have to write back and say, look, you have no legal protections, and, and you, have to op you have to go forward on that basis. So, yeah. I mean, I think that we, you know, as researchers, we need to take a cue from journalism and begin to organize to get these structures in place to protect our, 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 our informants. Masha, yes. Yeah, if I can just pipe in, I mean, there's something very important that you've brought up about institutional responsibility. And there are two things that have happened in, in the life of journalists in the last, uh, I'd say, dozen years that have put journalists, especially working in conflict zones, in much gre greater danger. Than, than we used to be. Uh, one is that news organizations are increasingly relying on freelancers. Mm -hmm. And when they use freelancers, that means that they're not providing them with insurance. And furthermore, when they get contacted by hostage takers who've taken freelancers, mm -hmm. they say they've never heard of them. There's, uh, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a set practice. 
I've never heard of, uh, of, of any news organization that doesn't do that. There's a conceit uh, that, that that actually protects the journalists because they're, you know, they're not marked as a journalist, which is ridiculous. What it is is, is, is basically abdicating responsibility, but it is standard practice. And another thing that also uh, makes journalists, uh, freelancers, uh, places freelancers in more danger is that it used to be, back when I was a work correspondent in the 90s, we knew that writers were in less, at less risk than photographers and, and operators. Because of course, you know, to get a picture, you have to be out in the forefront. But now they use people who, are, who take pictures and take video. And, uh, and write at the same time. So you're a freelancer, you have no insurance, and you have to be out there and you have to take this, it to this get This is the, the situation that James Foley found himself Absolutely. in. Absolutely. That's exactly the situation yeah. that he found himself in. Yeah. So that's one thing. The other thing that has happened in the last dozen years, and this is something that reversed a trend that had been existed in journalism since World War II, right? Which is when, uh, I mean, the, the whole separation between the, uh, the conflict, the sides of the conflict and journalists has only existed since World War II, right? Uh, and all of a sudden, um, with the second war in Iraq, the Americans decided that they would no longer observe that separation, that journalists now, if they wanted to report on the war, they had to be embedded mm. with, uh, uh, with American troops. They, hadn't, they didn't invent embedding, actually, I believe Russians invented embedding two years <laughs> yes. earlier with the second war in Chechnya. Yeah. Uh, it works very well for, for whoever does the embedding. It, it, it puts journalists in grave danger because it places us in the vehicle, or you know, with the uniformed personnel, and there's nothing wrong with being shot at by the by the laws of war, right? War is legal. War has laws. There's nothing wrong with with somebody shooting at you if you're in a military vehicle, if you're with uniformed armed personnel. That puts journalists in grave danger, and I don't think there has been nearly enough. And, and as, as someone who's I've, I've spent a lot of time in these embeds in Afghanistan and. Iraq, uh, in Pakistan with the Pakistani military, and the difficulty too, Masha, is that not only are, are you exposed, but to the extent that you're able to explore all sides of the story, you are only getting the story that, that they want. And yet, without that trade-off, you don't get access. That's and it's an ethical question, mm. because if you're, you're with the military, then <laughs> you're pressured to tell one side of the story, and I, I find it quite... Disturbing. So. No, it, it is. Uh, I, I want to put a question to each of the, the panellists and uh, just share a story with you before I do. The, the James Foley story, of course, resonated with all of us and particularly those of us who spent time reporting in, in war zones. Um, of course, reminiscent of the Daniel Pearl story as well, uh, who was also killed in Pakistan. But I remember one moment that when we were in Pakistan and there'd been siege at the Red Mosque the enormous shootout in the middle of Islamabad, and one of the uh, one of the, the leaders of the Red Mosque siege had disappeared to Afghanistan, and was probably one of the two one or two most wanted men in all of Pakistan. He came back to uh, Pakistan undercover and wanted to send a message to the Pakistani Taliban, because there was a bit of a split between the Afghan Taliban and the Pakistani Taliban. He had a message to deliver from Mullah Omar, uh, the leader of the Taliban. We had someone who was working as an intermediary with us. With, uh, with the Taliban, who'd organised for us to do an interview with this person. Um, now, it was, it was one of those moments where we had to make a decision. Do we put, place ourselves in their custody effectively? Are they going to... Uh, can we ensure our safety if we do this? If we don't do it, you're only getting half the story. 
If you spend your time entirely with the Australian military or the American military or the Pakistani military or the British military, you're getting their story. And it is extraordinarily important for us to be able to hear the stories of, of others and to hear what the Taliban has to say. Uh, we agreed to do the interview and it was everything you would imagine it to be. A cloak and dagger exercise to leave Islamabad, to drive for 60 or 70 kilometres, come to a village, there'll be a T-section, a car will be parked by the side of the road, don't stop, blink, blink your lights, he'll pull in front of you, another car will pull behind you, take you down other winding roads, get out, change cars, go on to another, uh, to another address and there would be a small hut in the middle of a field. Uh, we were taken in, uh, out came this man covered, just dressed in white, white turban. Um, we couldn't film his face, we couldn't film any identifying marks. The only thing we could film was the back of his head to do the entire interview. Two armed men stood either side of my cameraman with the guns pointed directly at him to, and looking down the viewfinder of the camera to make sure that he didn't film anything that may be identifying. The entire time, we didn't know when we went in if we were going to come out. You just don't know. And we know that there are journalists who have made these deals and gone in and, uh, and are then often kidnapped and sold on up the line. Fortunately, we did come out, but it was a decision that we had to make because we believed that the risks were manageable. I believed in the person who was our intermediary. I believed in the person we were interviewing and, uh, and his credibility as a senior Taliban cleric. Uh, but it was a decision we had to weigh up. What, Lydia, is a story that you'd be prepared to put, and I think you probably answered this, but a story you're prepared to put your life on the line for? Well, the story of my life. <laughs> I've been doing that uh, for a long time and I, I, I guess um, uh, the line of work I do, the kind of investigations, I, I, I follow the trails of uh, organised crime leaders and I, I've investigated, I became such a, some kind of specialist on understanding how uh, the um, traffickers, human traffickers, launder their money and how they cut deals with bankers and stuff. So, so I guess I would always put uh, my life on the line when it comes to truly changing the way uh, people who read the newspaper or that read my books uh, will see human beings. I mean, it's just a matter of humanity. It's not a matter of, uh, of having my name there. It's just a matter of helping people understand their stories that are worth fighting for. And we tend to forget that because there's so much cynicism around the world. So I uh, will keep doing that and if my work is useful, I guess. Masha, is there a story that, and has it happened in your life, where you felt that your life could be threatened? And is there a story that you believe is worth enduring that? Yes and no. <laughs> I no. I, I mean, you're not going to believe me, but no, I do not think there's a story that's worth risking your life for. Um, but so uh, there have been a couple times in my life when I realized that I had put my life at risk, and I felt like an idiot for having done that. I felt like I hadn't taken the risks into consideration. I regretted it deeply, and I'm, I was very happy to to get out of the situation. And there's one time when I was sentenced to 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 be executed by uh, the rebels in Kosovo, and um, and it was because I was I was following a hunch in a story, and uh, uh, and I was being vain, and I was being, and I just really wanted the story, and and, and I underestimated the risks. 
And the second time was just, was just um, um, actually a couple of months ago uh, when, um, when I realized I was about to, get, to be kidnapped uh, and, uh, in, in Dagestan. And, um, and I knew, you know, I immediately basically forfeited, forfeited the interview, which I really wanted, but I wanted to live more. So, uh, you know, so I, I, I summoned the driver, the, the source realized that I had just called somebody um, and, you know, got really mad at me. But then, you know, all that happens that I got into a car, back, went back into uh, to, to, to my hotel room and had lost an interview. And it's always that sort of thing. It's always sort of, wait, uh, it's always in the, on, the, on the edge of being trivial. How do you so weigh the, the, the balance? How, yeah, and what, what sort of, what sort of, um, decisions do you have to make? How do you weigh up that? What, what can you do to mitigate potential risk when you know you're putting yourself into a dangerous situation, even just by being there? I try to, to keep dangerous trips short. I try not to go into any situation that I don't absolutely have to go into to get the story. If there are other ways to get the story, if, it, if they're longer, more tedious, less exciting, I will try to use those ways. Um, there, you know, there are basic precautions, like uh, when I'm in a place like Dagestan, uh, there's a designated friend who gets text messages from me uh, at least every couple of hours and every time I move. So, you know, I will text the address where I am and, 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 and where I'm leaving to go to and when I arrive to that place and um, that sort of thing. Um, I mean, that, none of that is foolproof, no. uh, but I think it's sort of due diligence. And I, I think it's fair to say in the, in the cases that we do see things go horribly wrong, uh, people have not necessarily followed that. And we know, sadly, in the case of Daniel Pearl, where he was on his own, delivered into the hands, putting yourself in the hands of people who ultimately mean you harm. And I know when I was working with CNN, uh, we, would, we would go through regular training about being aware of our surroundings. We often worked with security people who'd been former military people who knew how to get us in and out of situations. Uh, even then, there were occasions when we lost colleagues. And uh, one occasion in Iraq when uh, there was an ambush and, and two of our colleagues were killed on the same day. Um, these, as you say, it's not, it's not foolproof. Bradley, it's not a question of putting your life at risk, but, but the risks you are prepared to, to take in being able to do your work you do. I know that you say that you don't see what you do as breaking the, the law. You're not breaking into buildings, you're sneaking in to buildings. <laughs> and <laughs> what, is, what is the difference? Um, well, I guess, you know, the, the urban explorers are trying to get into spaces sort of without anyone knowing that they've accessed those spaces. You're trying to get the information and get out with it. And it's only at the point of publication that people know you've been in there. Um, explorers have been in situations that are incredibly dangerous. Uh, usually, they didn't anticipate those dangers. Um, I had a, a friend recently... I'm not going to say where he lives, but he's been very interested in some tunnels that he knew were underneath the city, and he um, finally got very close to those tunnels, and someone showed up at uh, his office, and he was told in no uncertain terms that he shouldn't be snooping around. And he suspects that those tunnels are, are being used for drug smuggling. Mm. Um, they're disused tunnels that have been, haven't been used for some time, as far as anyone else knows. Um, so those situations can arise. But I think that, you know... Sitting here and actually listening to these stories, I'm actually, I'm actually getting increasingly frustrated because I'm realizing that, you know, journalists still have the ability to take risks and, and to put their life on the line to get these stories if they want to. We can't as academics. I mean, we... Well, let's do something together. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
She's a, she's a dangerous you woman. You got yourself know. a deal <laughs> now. Well, if yes. you need a photographer. <laughs> but, you know, I think it's, 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 it's very important that we're able to make those decisions. And increasingly, we're living in a world where, you know, these bureaucratic processes are shutting down our ability to, to decide for ourselves when we're going to take the risk to, to, to get the story. And, and Marshall, we've painted a very honourable and noble um, uh, picture here of, of the profession of journalism, but we're also living in an age where journalism is being criticised for dumbing down debate, for trivialising news. What is the balance, as you see it, between the tabloidization of news, the trivialization of news, and the important work that still needs to be done? Are we, is the industry failing the public in a broad sense? Uh, is this, is, is the, the work we're talking about today elite sport, if you like, and not for the you know, general consumption? You know, I don't actually think there's a relationship between sophistication and danger. Mm. I don't think you have to take great risk in order to do important and informative journalism and to just to tell great stories. And, um, I mean, yes, there's a lot of terrible tabloid, dumbed-down journalism out there. Uh, there's also a lot of great journalism. There's a lot of the kind of storytelling that, you know, we didn't see 20 years ago because so many more people have access to, 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 to the means of, of, of publishing. Uh, there is a resurgence of interest in long-form storytelling. So, I, you know, I don't think the situation is so simple. And also, I'm old enough to have like, lived through many generations of, yes. that have lamented the death <laughs> of journalism and, and the dumbing down of things. What I do think is real, what I do think is happening, is that um, uh, English-speaking countries are becoming increasingly isolationist. Uh, and especially the United States has cut down on uh, foreign reporting. Mm. And there's also a direct relationship between the deterioration of foreign reporting and the wars the United States fights. Because basically, uh, you know, what, uh, the reason that the American media missed the Putin story in the early 2000s was because the Moscow bureaus began feeding, uh, you know, just, they just became feeders for reporting on the war in Afghanistan. Mm. Yeah. So, the, you know, the journalists would come back from Kabul... To rest. ...to, to take a shower, <laughs> yes. you know, and write a story or two. And whatever the, the dominant narrative was, was, which was at the time that Putin is an economic reformer, that's what they would write, and then they would go back to doing the real story in Kabul. The real story in Kabul was also extremely problematic because they were basically doing it through the viewfinder of the armored personnel carrier yeah. of the U.S. Army. So what was, was passing for foreign reporting in the mainstream media in the United States for the entire early uh, aughts was you know, the, the view of the United States military, mm. that view of the world. That, I think, is a, is a real problem. Mm. I'd love to open up to your questions from the floor in just a moment. Before we do, um, Lydia and Masha, you both made the decision to leave the countries that you're reporting on, and you've since gone back, and I know, Masha, you still go in and out of Russia, but for someone who doesn't scare easily, and God knows you had enough reason to, to feel intimidated and to feel as if your life was on the line, mm. was it a difficult decision to leave Mexico? Oh, yes. The, the, the two times that I had to leave for a couple of months, it was, it was really hard because... It's like I have this thing of, I'm doing the right thing, right? Like my mom told me to when I was a little girl. And all of a sudden I'm being persecuted because of that. And I'm being persecuted as if I was a criminal and uh, these guys want to kill me. And then I call the federal police and they tell me, oh no, they're very dangerous, Miss Cacho, just you better leave the country, you know? So um, yes, it is frustrating, of course. And uh, I'm not a criminal. The criminals are the guys I'm writing about. So. Yeah, the, I took the decision twice, 
thanks to some security advisors that are very, very, very nice and very clever and told me this is a real one because they knew it was, it came through email and they knew exactly where it came from and it was one of the leaders of one of the cartels. And he really explained how he was going to give my body in pieces to my dad. So we, we did take, you know, security measurements and I, I left for, for three months and I wrote about it until they, they got one of the guys. And then he was busy running away from the police. So that's basically what I do. I tell their stories. So sometimes police goes after them and they stop teasing me or, or uh, being aggressive to me or telling me they're going to kill me. But yes, of course it is. Mm. It's very frustrating. Masha, your decision to leave Russia, did you feel you needed to or did you feel that was a choice you, you wanted to make? I know you have gone back and you go back and continue to work from there. Well, um, the reason I left Russia uh, last December was that the government made it clear that they were going to go after my kids. And, um, and that's, that's, that's a classic for, uh, for Soviet and Russian governments. Uh, I didn't think that the real risk of you know, my ch losing my children was huge, but I didn't think that any level of risk was acceptable. And that, that was a game changer because, of course, with my own personal safety, I was always thinking, okay, this is acceptable risk, this is not acceptable risk, this is when I you know, have to address this. With kids, it, yeah. just, it just made me sick. It yeah. just, you know, I, I wasn't even willing to entertain any level of risk. So we had to get out of the country. And that was, that was very hard because uh, when I was in Sydney last time, just over two years ago, when the Putin book had first come out, people kept asking me why I was still living in Russia. And I kept saying, well, it's my home, he can leave and I'm staying. Exactly. And then they figured out a way to get rid of us. And that was, that's a defeat. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think we're taking our revenge by settling in New York, but, uh, um, <laughs> but have, still. Have you had any problems getting into the United States? I mean, have I, you had, I had a, a, a U.S. citizen. Yeah. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah.